You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We are at the conclusion, the very, the very final sermon um, of our series through Romans. This is our 21st week, so we've been, we've been in this book now since January, um, and, and I'm very excited um, to, to have arrived here because I think that um, we're going to hopefully be, be very encouraged this morning. I think... I think ultimately uh, these sermons, sort of the, the, the end of a series, are, are always kind of difficult because there's, there's things that you've sort of learned throughout the duration of the book um, that you really want to be fresh on people's minds. And so I, for, I for, forgive myself, and I hope you'll forgive me too, um, for, for maybe this seeming like I'm just kind of uh, machine gunning you with truth this morning, but um, it's, it's beautiful stuff and hopefully we will be encouraged. But um, for those of you, maybe this is your first time and, and you haven't engaged with any of this content in Romans yet, let me just kind of set you up for where we're at in the letter. And it's, it's as simple as this. The first six chapters, essentially, of the book, um, Paul goes on to explain how the world is broken and how it's been fixed in Jesus and how that applies applies to us personally, meaning that um, following Jesus is not necessarily um, just lining up with a certain list of moral values, but that rather Jesus accomplished that list for us because we couldn't. And so that, that, that then begins to differentiate us from really uh, any other belief system on, on the planet. Uh, and so we, we saw that shift. We saw that shift in thinking. Really, many people's problems with Christianity are addressed by that truth. Um, because, again, it's, we, are, we have been known more often than not as Christians for our morality rather than for our message. Which Romans 1, uh, verses 16 and 17 tell us that it's actually the message that is the power for salvation to all who would believe, not the morality. And so although there are implications for the believer, meaning when we choose to follow Jesus, our lives change, we don't do that in order to earn God's favor, but we do that because we've been given God's favor in Jesus as a free gift. And then the, the sort of the, the chapters 6 through 12 are all about what God's going to do in us through this good news, through this message. So it tells us that although we struggle with sin, as, as Paul so sort of forthcoming uh, with his sin in, in chapter 7 tells us that it's a, it's a battle that he doesn't know sometimes why he does the things that he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things that he does want to do. But we come to to chapter 8, verse 1, and it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we begin to learn that that this gift that we've been given is not something that ultimately can be removed from us, that what God decrees comes to pass, meaning what he says, what he promises will happen, happens. And so when he makes promises to the believer in Romans, we can have faith that those will be accomplished. And now we arrive really at the end of sort of the final section in which in Romans 12, we see a shift where it says that on account of all of those things, on account of all of the beauty of the truth from Romans chapters 1 through 11, that now we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God and that 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 response is actually a response that is, that is logical, that is a reasonable response. Meaning if we have truly grasped the riches of the gospel explained to us in the first 11 chapters, that the only reasonable response is to offer ourselves, our entire lives, in response to that great gift, to that great mercy that we've been shown in Jesus. And so 
the last few weeks, we've talked about how that plays itself out in, in a love for one another, meaning the, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the people who have been redeemed by Christ lived a life that is, that is ultimately distinct in that nature, right? Meaning that we love and we care for, another, for one another rather than using one another sort of to obtain maybe what we feel like we deserve or need, Right? And then we talked about how that plays itself out also in a love for those who are outside of the community of Christ, meaning that it's by our love that they will know that we are his disciples. Jesus himself said that in John, right? He said, it is by your love that they will know that you are my disciples. So he gives us sort of this great, this great understanding of how we're supposed to interact with one another and how we're supposed to interact with those uh, who are among us who are not, not in the faith, who don't, who don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And then we arrived last week at, at this idea, really, of, of unity among diversity. So there's two groups of people in this Roman church that have struggled, have been at odds with one another for centuries, that Paul says, because of the gospel, you're one family now. And so he says, stop drawing dividing lines where, where God himself, where Jesus, the gospel, don't draw dividing lines. So if one of you eats, eat to the glory of God. If one of you abstains, abstain to the glory of God, but live in harmony together. Love one another, serve one another. And so we arrive here today at 15 as a continuation, really, of that, of that final argument, a call to unity. Right? This is Paul's, Paul's last plea. He's saying, look, I've told you all these glorious, beautiful things, and what I want them to serve in you is to, is to draw you into unity, unity of mind and unity of purpose, even when there are sort of diverse sets of belief on things that, that ultimately we would call morally neutral or things that, things that ultimately don't matter in the scope of someone's salvation, eating and drinking. So we're at the continuation of that argument. So when he says in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, he's referencing that previous argument. Right, so you've got um, we, we've got three things that we really want to sort of discover today, and I'm going to try to keep them short because the conclusion is really long, uh, because I really do want us to engage with the broader truth of Romans. Um, we've got three things. One, our example. Uh, so we're going to look at Jesus and, and how He is our example of, of bearing with the failings of the weak, of, of what it looks like to, to walk alongside one another in love and in patience and in kindness. And then we've got a, a second point, our hope. Uh, and then the third point will, will be His faithfulness, um, talking obviously about God. But uh, so this first point here, our example, Romans 15, 1 through 7, talks about Jesus as our example. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So here's the thing. Again, let's, let's be reminded there are two groups of people in this, in this argument, in this, in this discussion right now. You have the stronger brother, which is the Gentile, right? The, the person who has come to faith outside of the ethnic sort of nation of Israel, right? People that for a long time had been known as strangers to the faith. People that were cast aside, that were told they were not a part of this nation, of this people that Paul says through the gospel now they are. He says they're strong because their faith allows them to, in good conscience, put aside the rituals and the practices of the old law and simply live in faith and in grateful response to Jesus. That's why, that's why they've been told they're strong, 
right? And the weak brother in this situation, the Jew who still is somewhat hedging his bets, meaning he's, he's going, yes, I believe in the free grace and the mercy of Jesus, but at the same time, I feel like I need to do these things to remain in good conscience before God. And Paul tells them both, hey, whichever one you choose to do, it doesn't matter. Do them all to the glory with God. Bear with one another. And so when he talks to this strong person here, he says that, that they are designated as strong for a reason. They have this good grasp of grace. They understand that the gospel of grace has freed them from the law, as he's written in Romans. Right? We see that in chapter 7. And we see that the, the strong, in particular, in this situation, bears a responsibility to bear with the weak. And, and what's interesting about this is that, that Paul actually names himself in this, right? And I mean, I think if, if somebody asked, like if you were like, which, which camp do you think Paul falls in? We would pro probably all be like, yeah, he's one, he's one of the strong ones. Um, he wrote half the New Testament, by the way. So uh, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's why we would come to that conclusion, right? So, so Paul says, we as the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, meaning um, that, and this is, I'm going to try really hard not to get off on some rants here, but, um, but if we do, then uh, we'll just ask for grace. Um, <laughs> what, what this means ultimately is that in, in, in the people of God, right, among, uh, among the church, in, in the people who have assented to faith in Jesus, that there are going to be people who are at varying degrees sort of in their growth into faith. It doesn't mean that one is more justified than the other because we know that that's been accomplished through Jesus and that the same grace that was, that was needed for you is needed for them and that the same grace covers all. So it's not, it's not that, that you're more justified, but it is perhaps maybe that you're more sanctified, that you have a greater degree of understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. He's matured you in ways that maybe he hasn't matured others. And what we understand is that that does not necessarily make any one of us better than the other. In fact, what it does is, is the complete opposite. Rather than us saying, I'm better than you, and I'm going to hang out with people who are going to grow me, it's, I now have an obligation to then teach this to you. That we are in this together, that we grow together, that as Proverbs would say, that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So we begin to recognize that although there are those who are maybe weaker among us still growing in the faith, that that doesn't allow us to sit and criticize and judge or as the previous part of the, the, uh, the last part of chapter 14 told us, to despise our brothers and sisters. Right? So, so that's, that's the complete opposite of what, of what we would think and maybe what would, we would see even modeled for us in our culture today, that when we obtain those things that separate us from another group of people, rather than engaging them, we, we step back, right? So you were never annoyed with poor college students when you were one. But when you become a, a successful young professional married with two kids and you live in, in a nice big house, wherever it may be, at that point, young, young, broke college kids are annoying to you, right? Like that's what happens. That's the progression in life. But what Paul is saying is that in the church, it's completely opposite, meaning that as you grow, that as, you, as the riches of God's grace are more deeply, more fully revealed to you, that you have an obligation to bear with the weak in love. Now, now why, why is that? Why is that? Verse 3 for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches 
of those who reproached you fell on me. See, so, so, so the answer to that question, why? The answer to why is it that we should always be sort of seeking to serve one another? Why is it that we should leverage at all times our strength for the other person rather than for ourselves? It's because Jesus has done that for us. Because Jesus is our perfect example that if we are truly to be, as we say, disciples or followers of Jesus, then we should probably look somewhat like him that we should probably follow in his footsteps, that we should probably follow in his character. We should do the things that he has called us to do, but not just called us to do from his throne above, but that he's come down to illustrate for us on the cross. So we are to, we have this strong obligation. We have this, um, we have this weight. We have this obligation to please each, uh, each other, to please the neighbor for his good, to build each other up, because Jesus himself has done that. In fact, uh, what, what Paul is doing there in the quotation, he's quoting from, from Psalm 69, where, where it says um, that the reproaches of those who have reproached you, meaning talking about God, have fallen on me, talking about Jesus. So, so Jesus, what he didn't do in the situation uh, that he was in was say, uh, so Philippians 2 says that, that he had equality with God, right? And so, so he, was, he was strong. Jesus was not, not weak, right? And, and yet God says, I'm, I'm going to send you to dwell among my people. And, and here's what Jesus doesn't do. They're weak. They're, they're kind of annoying. I, I don't know if I want to deal with all that. There's this whole thing called humanity. It's real awkward. I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. Like, we've both kind of witnessed that from up here. It's a raw deal. Can we, uh, can we figure this out another way, perhaps? No, he, he leveraged his strength. In fact, he set aside his strength in order to come and be among us. Right? So th- this is the example of humility that we are called to in the people of God among the people of God. And so that's why uh, essentially what Paul is saying is, look, this truth, if we understand this truth, if we understand what Jesus has done for us, we will then be not only equipped, but obligated to this same calling, that we will be united in a way really that's, that's incomprehensible for people who do not understand the gospel. Because there, there are no earthly paradigms, there are no just sort of cultural worldviews that espouse this kind of living. There just aren't. We can all say, yes, maybe, you know, okay, I, I gave a cent at the, you know, in the line to St. Jude's or whatever. Like, but this is talking about something completely and totally different. That our entire lives, everything about us is leveraged towards bearing with the failings of the weak in order that we might be built up into the unity of the faith which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I have to move on, otherwise um, we're going to get bogged down. Um, But so the next verse says this, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with 
Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what happens, right? So Paul says, he's, he's concluding his argument. He's saying, strong, bear with the weak. You, you can't despise them. He's telling the weak, you can't judge your fellow brothers and sisters on account of something that is, that is morally neutral. You guys need to be drawn together. You need to be unified because Christ sacrificed himself for you. And in that you are together, you are one people. And then Paul's going to say a prayer on, the beha- on their behalf. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. So notice this in Paul's prayer, right? So this, th- this is the example that we have. In Paul's prayer, what he does not pray for is this. Guys, would you guys just get together and kind of kind of knock this thing out, figure out a, a, a common ground that you guys can stand on, uh, come to the same agreement, understand, believe the exact same thing in this area, right? Because, because you've got two people that are struggling. One person that says, I don't think I can eat and drink those things, and one person that says, I'm free in grace and I can eat and drink those things. And Paul says both of them are cool. So what he's saying is, listen, I'm not asking that all of you come to the exact same spot, but I'm, I am asking that you will experience unity in accordance with Christ. Right? So Paul's concern is not, at least primarily, that the believers in Rome all hold the same opinion on every single matter, but that they remain united in their devotion to the Lord Jesus and to his service in the world so that with one voice we might glorify God. Right, so here's the thing, the, the ultimate purpose in all of this, in all of this that Paul is writing, although we experience many benefits sort of personally from it, in that we experience a place where we have unity and peace and joy and hope, and we get to bear with one another in love, and we can be known fully in our sin and know that the grace of God covers that all the more. And so we can be honest with our failings and we can come to this table, to this place, however, however we happen to be at that moment. Although all of those benefits we experience, the primary reason that that Jesus and that Paul call us to this unity is, is not just for the sake of our comfort or even for our enjoyment, although we do find fulfillment in it, it is for the glory of God. Because see, God, is, God has purposed it to be such that, that as he draws to himself a people, that those people then testify to his grace, Right? So, so Ephesians chapter 3 would put it this way. It's, it would say that it, it was his intent that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So that through a redeemed people, he would make his glory known to the nations. So, so primarily, although we experience benefit in, in this idea of a peaceful community that we can belong to in hope and in joy... The, the primary end to which Paul is writing all of these things, everything from Romans chapter one all the way through the end of the book, the primary reason is that we would be drawn into the story of God in order to glorify God. So here's the thing. And when we, we begin to talk about division, and I think, I think all of us have maybe at some point experienced a church situation that was uncomfortable for us. Because you have people on opposite sides of the aisle kind of lobbing grenades at each other. What, what we begin to see through this text is that the division in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission, 
which is the proclamation of the gospel and glorifying God. So here's the thing. If God has purchased for himself a people, right? If, if he said to us, if he said to the people of God, I will be your people or I will be your God and you will be my people, right? So we go to 1 Peter, we see royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for my own possession. Then our, our, our primary mission our, our primary sort of job, our primary identity is to be that people which then glorifies the God to whom they belong. And so much of what we get sort of um, railroaded for in, in, in the world today, particularly in, in the States, is not based on our message, but it's based on our, on our morality and, and oftentimes on some things even that, that we would say are morally neutral, meaning what we eat or what we drink. And when Paul says, look, you guys are fighting over these little things. Your primary goal is to make, make the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of God known. And in your bickering, that's not the case. In your bickering, those things don't happen. Let me show you, let me, let me tell you the example of Christ who could have stirred division among, among himself, the Father, and the Spirit, but instead said, I will not grasp onto my equality, but I will make myself nothing. I will be made into the form of a man, and I will humble myself even to death on a cross for the sake of my weaker brother. Because, because remember, you, you and I are the, are the weaker brother in that instance. Meaning, meaning we were the, the, the helpless, the, the in need Right? And, and the Bible tells us now that we've been adopted into his family, that we are brothers and sisters with Jesus, co-heirs according to the promise. So Jesus is the perfect example of what a strong brother looks like and, and the lengths that he is willing to go for, for the brother that is weaker. So he's our perfect, uh, our perfect example. Uh, second point, our hope. This one's going to be shorter, I promise. Um, 15, 7 through 9. Here we go. Um, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he's saying in light of all these things, we should welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So in the same way that Jesus extended his hand to us, welcomed us into his family, we should turn to one another as fellow believers, followers of Jesus Christ and welcome one another into our homes, into our lives, into all that we have because we've been welcomed in the same way into all that Christ had. We've been welcomed into his family, into his treasure, into his inheritance, into his peace, his joy, his love, his hope. And so in the same way, we are to welcome one another. Now, so here's the thing. Really, verses 15 um, through, uh, sorry, verses 1 through 4 are all about kind of the stronger brother. But Paul, uh, Paul makes a shift here um, in verse 7 where he's no longer just talking about that one sort of segment of the Roman population like he did in 14.1. So in 14.1 he says, as, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then he talks to the stronger brother again in 15.1 in and he says, you who are strong, you have an, an obligation but now when he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, he's talking to every believer, every brother and sister in this family at the church of Rome. 
He says, look, those of you weaker brothers who were judging your strong brothers, welcome them in love. Those of you who are stronger brothers who were despising the weaker brothers on account of something that is not worth despising, welcome them in love in light of all of these things. And our hope is, is this, right? Paul tells us that that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So here's the thing. Paul addresses now the weaker believer, the Jew. And he says, look, Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So, so this is going to sound kind of weird, but, and if you don't have any sort of knowledge of, of the, the Bible, that's, that's okay. I'm going to try to explain it. But essentially what happened was we believe that God created all things perfect. We messed it up. But then God continued to be kind towards us, continued to pursue us in love. And what he did was he went to a man named Abraham and he said, through you... I will make a great nation, and through that nation, I will bless all nations. And so, with that, the nation of Israel is born, the, the, the ethnic Jew is sort of born, um, and, and this, this people walk throughout history. That's what the rest of the Old Testament, all the books written before Jesus are about. It's about the history of this, of this nation that God has called for his own uh, possession and how they fail regularly all the time. And yet, it promises them that, that one day all things will be made right, that the kingdom will actually be restored, that, that there will come a person who rectifies all of these things. And so what Paul is saying is, look, for the Jew, Christ came to, to fulfill those promises that, that, I, that, or that, that God has made to that people. Like he, like he, so Christ has come for the Jew, but then what does he say? He also says that he did so in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So again, uh, Jesus didn't just come to bless one nation, which is what the Jewish people had, had thousands of years of history of thought, thinking that that would be the case. But that, but that just like God promised to Abraham that he would draw himself a people and that through that people, he would bless all nations. So what Paul is saying and what he's been saying all throughout the book of Romans is that everyone is welcome into the family of Jesus because the gospel message is the power of salvation unto all who would believe. And so here's, here's how this is our, our hope, right? Our, our hope is that we have a God ultimately that fulfills his promises, right? And that's, that's what, what Paul is getting at here. And what he's calling both groups of people to be reminded of is that Jesus Christ came for both of them and that in them he has been faithful. Meaning when we go back into portions of Romans and we see that this hope that we are being shown is a hope that will not be put to shame. He means that that what Christ has done is in faithfulness to all that he promised he would do from the beginning that he would remake all things new in the person and work of Jesus. So he's, he's our hope. Jesus is not only our example of unity, but he's our only hope for unity. Because what we're saying is that we, we won't experience this measure of togetherness, we won't experience this measure of, of, uh, of care and love for one another apart from this gospel apart from our understanding of what Jesus actually did on our behalf, apart from our, understa- our understanding of what Jesus has done for each and every person that calls upon him as Savior, 
regardless of where they may be on sort of their spectrum of faith. The third thing uh, that we wanted to address real quick was just his faithfulness. And, and so what we've already said is that Jesus is, is our example of unity, that he's our only hope for unity, like, like that we're only going to find that through him, but that he's also faithful to provide it. He's also faithful to provide it. So verses 10 through 12 say this, or we'll, we'll take the back half of nine. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul, in this instance, cites every part of the Old Testament writings. He, 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 cites, um, he cites the writings, he cites the law, he cites the prophets, Right? So he comes from Psalms. He comes from the historical narrative of the Old Testament. He comes from uh, the prophecy of the Old Testament delivered by Isaiah. He talks about every sort of single uh, area of the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, look, this is going to come to pass because it has been promised to us. And God is nothing if he is not faithful. Right? That's what that's what Romans 3 was all about, about how we were faithless, but that God remains faithful. And that no matter how faithless we are, that no matter how, how sort of to the, to the brink we take it, that that does not negate God's faithfulness. Meaning that even though we failed to live up to the standard, he would not fail to draw us in apart from that failure. So, what God decrees comes to pass. We've, we've said this all throughout, all throughout this series, all throughout the book of Romans. What God decrees comes to pass. And so this is where um, the example of Jesus and the hope of Jesus, we can ultimately rest in the truth that we will um, be given this unity that Jesus is our hope for and our example for. Because what God decrees comes to pass. So although we battle now, just as, the, the, just as he confirmed the promises to Abraham, he will confirm the promises to us that he's made for us in Romans. Just as he fulfilled the promise to Abraham to create a great nation through whom the other nations would be blessed in the same way, he will fulfill the promise that he will present his bride to himself blameless. We will be the people both to whom and through whom he reveals himself. So this is, this is where you can have confidence in, in the church, although it is oftentimes more messy um, and more unsightly than we would want to admit. Because the Bible tells us that nobody lays a foundation unless they plan to build on it. And, and the Bible also tells us that God laid a foundation in Jesus and that, and that that foundation was for a people that he would reveal himself to and a people that he would reveal himself through. And so those things will happen. And so that's why we can come in here on a Sunday morning and the first thing we tell you is um, that we are an imperfect church, but that we still have hope that you would see and that you would taste the perfection of Jesus. Because God promises that will happen. That in spite of the messiness of his people, that in spite of the fact that there are two, maybe three, maybe four disparate groups of people, that we have unity in Jesus and that in that unity the gospel is communicated. And that he will be faithful to see those things happen.
Romans 13, uh, uh, 15, verse 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The faithful God is our hope because he is faithful. What he decrees comes to pass. And what Paul says is, May this God, may this God fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. And brothers and sisters, this is really, I mean, I mean, obviously there's, there's more that he writes, but this is the ultimate conclusion of the entire letter. The rest of it, he's kind of addressing people that he knows, um, people that he cares for in the Roman church. But this is really the end to which Paul has written the entire book of Romans. So, so if you want to know, like, what does it look like for us to essentially swallow the pill that, that, um, that Paul has given us over the last 21 weeks that we've been preaching through Romans? What does it look like? What does that mean for us? Well, what Paul is saying is that hopefully it fills us with joy and peace in believing. Hopefully it causes us to abound in hope. Hopefully it causes us to look at the situation maybe in the church or in the world or whatever it is that gets us down about what's going on around us and say there is hope in that because Jesus is faithful to do what he said he would do. So why, why can we abound in hope? Well, here it is, just a, a, quick, a quick revision of the book of Romans, right? Chapter 1, we, we get brought face to face with our sin and our depravity. We weep with the injustices of the world, those injustices that ultimately the Bible tells us our hearts cry out for. Longing for a good king, a faithful ruler, a just society. But the problem is that there is no such earthly king. There is, in fact, none righteous, as Romans 3 would tell us. There's none righteous, not even one, that all have turned aside and all have become altogether worthless been told that we've all fallen sin, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all lost, incapable of saving ourselves. Right? We were confronted with that truth and divorced from the rest of the book. That would be a horrific state to be caught in. And yet we see that, that, that God instead has offered for us free justification in Jesus. That's what that, that turning verse is in verse 24 in chapter 3, right? Everybody memorizes the bad news of verse 23, and we forget to memorize the good news of 24, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, but have been justified freely by the grace of Jesus. And so we begin to learn that God didn't forsake his people, but that his righteousness was made manifest apart from the law. And that we now have peace with God through faith, not through works of the law. So we've been given peace with God. We have this confidence. In, in chapter 6, we hear that we are dead to sin, alive to God, slaves to his righteousness, released from the law as a means for redemption, but not released from it as a means of, uh, of showing the goodness and the grandeur of God. And in chapter 7, we saw that even though we struggle with sin, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've been adopted into his family. With this knowledge, we can have faith that even in the difficult times, as the latter part of, of Romans chapter 8 tells us, that, that there is suffering, that the world yearns, groans in, in pain, in longing for the day when its suffering will be released. We can know that God has promised that will happen. And that's why we can come to that text and say all things work together for good for those who love him. Because our ultimate destiny has already been secured. Because what Jesus has done for us is permanent. 
because our righteousness is something that can't be removed from us because it's already been given to us. We can't then be separated from the love of Christ. And now we are sent, as Romans 10 would say, to preach this good news. And we preach this good news of the gospel to others so that they might hear, so that they might believe and call on the name of Jesus because that is the power unto salvation, not the way you live your life, not the way sort of your, your, your moral uh, uh, compass is readjusted by the gospel, but it's the gospel that changes people's lives. And so now we live lives capable of glorifying God by the empowered indwelling of the Spirit. We glorify Him in the nations by loving one another, seeking to please one another in Christ, serving and building one another up. Like so all, everything that Paul has written about in Romans, all of these great truths, those are all promises that were given to us by God and that will be fulfilled by God. And so we can rest in the faithfulness of God to complete for us not only our salvation, but our, 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 our wholeness as a body of Christ, that He will deliver us to Himself as a people collectively, not just individually, but as a people collectively before Himself perfect and blameless. You see, brothers and sisters, this unity right here is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what heaven will be. Heaven will be that place in which we live in fully into our new identity that we've been given in Jesus, where we will finally and fully be released from this body of death that, that Paul um, pronounces in verse 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will. Who will deliver us from sort of the, the petty nature of things that, that happen, not only in the church, but even outside of the church, the things that we divide upon that, that Jesus says we shouldn't divide upon? We'll be delivered from that in heaven. And so we strive for it now because in imaging heaven, we glorify Jesus. We show that he is worthy. We show that what he says is true. We show that the gospel actually is his power unto salvation. And the beauty about all of these things is that as daunting and, and, and as, as difficult as all of these things seem, that we have a God who is faithful and that what he decrees comes to pass. And so we're praying to that end here in Montrose. We're praying that we will be that people here in Montrose both to whom and through whom God will reveal himself through our love for one another, through our dwelling in peace and in unity with one another because of the gospel. Let's pray.